You guys pay much attention to what's going on with Israel? <clears throat> See what's going on in Europe? Um, just hundreds and thousands of, of people, and um, it's crazy. And then Obama came out and said that there's basically moral equivalence between um, what Hamas did and what Israel's doing. Uh, it's just craziness. And um, the, the amount of propaganda that's out there, the false information, um, it's insane. So anyway, keep praying for Israel. We want less evil in our world. Um, war is evil, but it can be justifiable. And um, so, yeah, mistakes are going to be made in Israel's incursion of Gaza. They will be made. But it wasn't a mistake for Hamas to come into Israel and, and rape and torture and dismember and do what they did. There's no moral equivalence in any of that. And so anyway, I'd like to, we're going to have a, a, a night here at the church, I think the uh, Friday after Thanksgiving, and show a film about the history of Israel. And it'd be a good opportunity to just talk about the nature of all that and maybe even field some questions if, if people have questions about it. Um, oh, okay. <clears throat> and then, of course, um, it's feeding a lot of eschatological questions uh, of what's going on. And, and you guys know I'm not a, a newspaper exegete. I don't interpret the Bible based upon current events, but we're all told to watch the signs and the times and all of that. And, and uh, so things are interesting. Um, but if you are into that stuff and you do believe in your Bible, uh, I'm pretty excited because it means the king is on the threshold of eternity. And um, I'm ready to get on with it. Okay, so uh, either last night, early this morning, uh, Steve's cousin, who's 20-something, early 20s, uh, was in a car accident up on Joppish Road uh, in front of Steve's brother's house, and he passed away this morning. So we want to we wanna be praying um, for the family. And um, yeah, before we do that, let me... Uh, before I run out of time here, let's review and then we'll put all this stuff before the Lord. How's that? The conclusion of chapter 19 is, as you know, it's right on the heels of Jesus' interaction with this rich young guy, this young man, who Jesus told him, because he came to Jesus and said, how do I get eternal life? And uh, he said, keep the commandments. Of course, nobody keeps the commandments. He said, if you want to be perfect, uh, he says, you should sell all that you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Of course, after that, the man went away sad. He had great possessions. He wasn't willing to set those things aside for eternal life to follow the king. And then Jesus said that, um, you know, it's difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, actually, it's easy for a, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And we know that's impossible. And then the disciples, when they heard this, they were completely knocked out of their senses by the comment, and they said, who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, with men, absolutely impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's where we left off, and it's where we pick up this week. So if you would, please stand so I can read the word of God to you, and then we'll pray. Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Then Peter answered and said, to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? 
So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers, father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Lord, thank you for your promise. And a few promises in here. They're ours and we have much to look forward to. So I pray, Lord, that as we talk about the passage, Lord, help us to understand some of the things that you've just said that certainly have a context um, that's in the minds of the apostles and is unpacked in other places of the word. But help us to understand, help us to look forward. And Lord, we, we do pray for Steve's family. Lord, especially the parents of his cousin, I can't even imagine. And Lord, I don't know where the parents and much of the family stand with you, but Lord, you have the ability uh, to bring light and hope into just terrible circumstances. So I pray, Lord, that you'd minister to that family, be with Steve and give him wisdom and grace as he ministers, uh, that he, um, by you, he could bring light to all of that, bring hope. Lord, we're thankful that Lissy is um, home with us here. Um, especially Nicole is thankful. And, um, and Lord, we pray for uh, Israel. We pray for the Gazans that are passive in regard to the crimes committed. Lord, that you would protect life. But Lord, as your word says, those who uh, shed a man's blood in murder, uh, by them their blood shall be shed by man. And so Lord, we pray for justice also in all of this and that you would work toward the banishment of evil in our world. But Lord, uh, even above all of that, Lord, that the gospel would penetrate all of the darkness there because there's much in Israel as there is in Gaza. All parties need you. And however you would do that, uh, Lord, we just pray that by all means, Lord, we love you. We trust you in this. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. It's 9.19. Well, we might have to cut it off in the middle. It's Kathy's fault, all those applauses and stuff. So uh, back to verse 27, Peter answered and said, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Okay, though, though Peter and the gang did not leave, you know, nearly as much as the rich man would have had to leave behind, they still dropped everything to follow Jesus. They dro- literally dropped their nets, the fishermen, and uh, they went and followed Jesus. And if the rich man was going to receive treasures in heaven for following Jesus, you know, what was really in store for the disciples? Here's Jesus' response. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, I have a cup here, but I'll take that too. Thanks. Not supposed to drink cold water when you're preaching. It gives you phlegm, <laughs> which is bad for the front row. So, <clears throat> so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, 
will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a strange verse. Yeah? Those of you that read ahead, have you been chewing on it a little bit? Oh, you guys already know what it talks about. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> what is the regeneration? It's not a regeneration. The, the Greek definite article is there, the regeneration, something specific, uh, which is not helpful. The word is only used twice in all of the New Testament. The last time it's used, it's in, in Titus 3, 5, and 6 to describe the new birth of the believer, uh, which of course occurs by way of the Holy Spirit's power. But here it refers to a time when Christ, the Son of Man, sits on his throne, the throne of his glory. The ESV translates the word regeneration as the new world. The NIV, uh, the renewal of all things. Now, both of those are more interpretations of the word rather than a translate, translation of it. Um, but we have to really look at the immediate context and then the overall biblical context uh, in order to kind of determine what it means. Okay? In the text, um, to begin with, is sort of, uh, we might call it some, some time stamps. It says that the regeneration is during uh, that time when Jesus sits on his throne. Okay? And it's at the time when the 12 apostles sit on 12 thrones and they judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So some questions for this. In what age or period of history does Jesus sit on the throne of his glory? I want to know, because I want to be there. And when will the 12 apostles judge the 12 tribes of Israel? All right, as to uh, Jesus' throne of glory, uh, this is not a heavenly throne. Uh, this is an earthly one. Uh, the angel Gabriel um, and Jesus, they both tell us this. Let's examine some of this. In Luke chapter 1, you can turn there if you like. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, I won't misquote the scriptures. Uh, the angel Gabriel, of course, we know the Christmas story, he comes, he appears to Mary. He says, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But of course, when Mary saw the angel, she was troubled. And so Gabriel said this. He says, do not be afraid, which I think is completely unreasonable. Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Did all that happen? Can I have a little more affirmation? Yes, it happened. Okay. He will be great. Was he great? And will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and, his king and of his kingdom there will be no end. So to Mary's son, who's also the son of God, God will give him the throne of David. Now the throne of David is not in heaven. That is an earthly throne. The throne of God is in heaven. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that one of his sons would sit on his throne and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of his, David's kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. So Gabriel's come to Mary to perpetuate that promise which will be fulfilled by her son. Jesus will, he will sit on the throne of David and he will establish that kingdom forever. And keep in mind that you know, Jesus, here in our text, he refers to himself once again as the son of man. Remember, this is from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Let's 
Read that again. Uh, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and they brought him near before him. That is, the Son of Man was brought near to the Ancient of Days. Then to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Perpetuating prophetically what was said in 2 Samuel. The Son of Man, who is Jesus, he was given in prophecy, in what we, you know, grammarians call the prophetic present, you know, looking forward to the future of what's going to happen. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His kingdom is established forever. All people, all nations, every language, they will come and serve him. Exactly as Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 4 say, they will flock to Jerusalem for that. The throne of his kingdom is earthly. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes, comes from where? From heaven, in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Same Son of Man, and the same throne of glory from Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus will sit on the throne of his glory when he comes. That's when he returns to the earth to sit on the throne of his father, David. Currently, he's sitting on his father's throne with him. But he will come, he'll sit on his father David's throne, at which time he'll rule over the earth, just as Daniel 7 and Gabriel in Luke 1 say he will. And then notice what occurs when Jesus returns and sits on the throne of his glory. <clears throat> Continuing on in Matthew 25. He says, all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. So when the Son of Man returns, he will judge the nations. Uh, the text is this illustration as a herdsman separates sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers. So in this particular age, when the Son of Man comes, there, there will be judgment. Let's return to Matthew 19. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We ask the question, in what period of history will Jesus sit on the throne of his glory? According to the, passage, uh, the passages we've looked at, it will follow his return to the earth. He will establish the kingdom on the throne of David, from which he'll rule the nations, and they'll gather to him for not just judgment, but as Isaiah 2 and 4 say, for worship. Imagine people from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, from Europe, all ascending the mountain of the Lord, as Isaiah says, to learn of his ways and to worship him. The time of his earthly kingdom is the regeneration. It cannot refer to the new heavens and the new earth because judgment, Scripture says, does not occur there. Does not. The wicked and the unbelieving they don't even get to set their eyes on the inheritance of God's people. They are judged in the age prior to that, and then they're shut out for eternity. Peter says that when this earth passes away, all of the works done in it will also pass away. Praise God. Praise God. The earth and all the evil done in it will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3.10. And following the final judgment, um, these current heavens 
You know, we say plural because uh, in the scriptures, the heavens are where the birds fly, and then where the stars are, and then there's where God dwells. There will be new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, where scripture says we will dwell with God for eternity. In that new reality, there's going to be no such thing as sin. All moral corruption, all evil will be absent. It won't even be possible at that time. All of us believers will be truly free from sin. We'll be free not to sin. Wouldn't that be nice? Your spouse is like, oh, praise God. So the regeneration is going to occur at the second coming because of Christ's presence on the earth in his glorified state. He will return, it's the text says, in all of his glory. What happened when John saw Jesus in all of his glory? He passed out. He was different. He was shining like the sun. He wasn't exactly the same as he was when he was here with us the first time. He's coming back glorified. Isaiah mentions a number of interesting things that happen spiritually, politically, and even in nature, just because the king returns. All nations will come to Jerusalem, we said, to be taught of the Lord, Isaiah 2.3. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, Isaiah 11.9. The whole world will be at peace temporarily. Israel will no longer be harassed by her enemies. That'll be nice, Isaiah 2.4. Even the animal kingdom will be at peace with each other and us. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, hunting will be super easy. The desert is going to flourish like a garden, Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. And the length of a person's life will be greatly extended like it was before the flood, Isaiah 65, verse 20. So when the the king returns, his very presence here in, in a glorified state is going to affect the natural world. Be crazy. All of that happens because he's here. He sits on the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem. And from there, he will rule over the planet. As to the second question, you know, when will the 12 apostles sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, the danger that arises when answering this question is the temptation to kind of dilute it with poetic or allegorical language. If we do that, we also have to allegorize the regeneration of the Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory as well. And if it's allegory... If it's not to be taken as real, who's to say what Jesus actually meant if he doesn't mean what he said? I'm not willing to play that game with anything here because the the disciples would just, I mean, be nothing to them. They took Jesus at his word. So just as Jesus will sit on the throne of his glory, the 12 apostles minus Judas and probably in his place, the apostle Paul, they're going to sit on 12 thrones. I expect to see them with my own eyes. And they will judge the literal 12 tribes of ethnic Israel. The only real question to ask of the text are these. What does it mean to judge and when will it take place? So as to judgment, does it mean to preside over and rule over, as sometimes it can mean in the scriptures? Or does it mean to judge in the sense to condemn for some crime? Well, there's another meaning as well. It can mean reward. So there's three different kinds of meanings there. Some believe that the 12 apostles will judge Israel for their unbelief in the Messiah. Okay? Others believe that they'll have a leadership role over the nation of Israel during what is called the regeneration, when Christ rules over the earth. And others believe that they'll be there to reward those Jews that came to faith and then suffered for it. Let's take a look at one of the only clues we have in all of Scripture. Revelation 20, 
verse 4. John says, and I saw thrones, hmm, and they sat on them. Thrones, who's they? Seems like we're supposed to know. And judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God and had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the passage ends with the resurrection of the martyrs and with the reign of Christ for a thousand years over the earth. In the chronology of the chapter and in the passage itself, these thrones and the judgment that follows occurs at the beginning of Christ's reign. They're resurrected to reign for a thousand years with Christ. So it happens at the beginning of that. Those martyred will be raised. And then from the context of the books of Daniel and Revelation, the majority of those that will be martyred at that time will be Jewish from the 12 tribes of Israel. So the judgment appears to be of a positive nature, honoring those that persevered in faith unto death in this terrible time that the earth is looking forward to because of evil. It's not that it's not deserved. Amen. So this is actually the, the most, biblically the most appropriate fulfillment of what Jesus promised the apostles in Matthew 19. Jesus said that it would happen when he comes to sit on the throne of his glory, which is what we see in the passage. And then, so that happened at the beginning because they're raised to reign with him. But then the judgment of the wicked happens at the very end of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. And that judgment's not good. Okay. And the judge is God. Back to Matthew. Verse 29, he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, the first promise, um, not regarding uh, Jesus sitting on his throne, but the one to the apostles, um, that's only to the apostles. You're, you're not going to sit on a throne and judge the 12 tribes. Okay. You okay with that? Okay. I want to high five the martyrs. Uh, but that role has been given to somebody else. But this one here, it says, is to everyone who has faithfully followed Christ, who sacrificed for him. Notice, though, how the fulfillment of these promises occur in the future, in the context of the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. As some of you have noticed, uh, Christians typically are not receiving a hundredfold in this life, Right? Yeah. Uh, Jim Elliot, who was murdered in Ecuador, did not receive that in this life. And the family that he left behind certainly did not. Martyred believers all over the world, they have died without experiencing this promise. But the keeping of the promise isn't for now. It's to be fulfilled in the regeneration. It's not for this lifetime. Now, <clears throat> there are, of course, there's and you know my position on these sorts of people, but TV evangelists and some pastors that uh, worth millions and millions and millions and myriads of millions of dollars, but all of them are false teachers. Let me emphasize all. All of them are false teachers. All of them fleece the flock of God for their wealth. These men are not Christians, and the greatest reward they'll experience is what they're experiencing right now. The closest they'll get to heaven is what they're enjoying right now unless they repent. And, and I would say sell everything they have and give it to the poor because they've, through psychological manipulation, 
They've ripped people off. Does that stay clearly enough how I feel about all that? Yeah. I'll cite passages. (laughs) Yeah. So the promises that Jesus is talking about, it's not for here and now. It's reserved for the kingdom when we rule and reign with Christ in the regeneration. Now this, to me, when I read this stuff, because I'm a covenant guy, uh, it's interesting because it's, this is so very different from what God promised the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. It's so different. The Old Covenant, uh, you know, ratified at Mount Sinai. Our covenant was ratified at Mount Calvary. Amen? It was, the one at Sinai was, was, was established with a very specific ethnic group known today as the Jews, but at that time they were called Hebrews. They came from Adam, or not Adam, well, I mean, of course they came from Adam, but they came from Abraham after God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, that's in Genesis 12. And at that time, God began to isolate a genome to create a unique people group to whom he would reveal himself, make covenants with, and make promises to. And then once this people group was established during their 400 years in Egypt, God then, of course, brings them out, makes a nation of them. He brings them through the wilderness of Sinai to Mount Sinai, where he established the Mosaic covenant with them, a covenant that's founded on the Ten Commandments. To these people, God began to make very specific promises that only apply to them. Now, of course, there's some promises made to them that are not you know, specifically to them nationally or ethnically, but many, many of them are only to them, and only the immediate context can determine the difference. What's the big deal? Well, Christians, as you might have noticed, they have a a bad habit of applying to themselves promises that aren't to them, but they're only to ethnic Israel. And it's a problem for a number of reasons, why we we should focus on promises made to us, and we should not avoid, but we should be mindful of the fact that Some of the ones made to them aren't for us. They're just for them. So first, we should do this. It's a problem not to because it's a product of bad exegesis. That is, improper interpretation of the Bible. That's not okay, right? Yeah. It hurts people's faith when those promises are not fulfilled in their lives. So they they go to the Old Testament. They find a flowery promise of God that does not have general or universal application to all people that love God, but it's specific to Israel. They claim it for themselves, and it never comes to pass. Well, in their mind, it makes God out to be a liar, and he's not. And then also, doing this thing of of applying those promises to us as New Covenant believers, it has a way of erasing the identity of Israel and replacing them with the church, which cannot be supported biblically. Okay, Just to demonstrate some differences between Israel and the church. Let me give you some examples from the promises. The promises, okay? There's many other differences. For ethnic Israel, faithfulness to God meant physical and material blessings in this life. Tremendous ones. Health, wealth, prosperity, militarily, complete national security, and guaranteed victory over its enemies. If Remember, it's all contingent if they're faithful. Agriculturally, no famine and no crops would fail. There's civilly, domestically. Uh, this is a nice one. No disease, pestilence, or plague would touch them. No miscarriage among the people or their flocks. No barrenness among them or their flocks. These were 
the actual promises to ethnic Israel in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 and chapter 28. You guys, these promises transcend modern medicine, anything they can perform. What modern methods of farming can guarantee and what current economics can secure. God was promising them the miraculous in this life for their faithfulness. That's crazy, huh? It's crazy, but it's true. But that's not the case for the church. Have you noticed? Faithfulness to Christ does not secure or guarantee physical or material blessing in this life for Christians. You know, there are faithful men and women in this country and abroad who live in poverty. People that love God deeply. They struggle with their health. They have very little security. Many are martyred for the faith. Faithfulness to the word of Christ has countless spiritual blessings in this life, but very few are actually material in nature for the new covenant believer. In fact, in the New Testament, faithfulness to Christ guarantees difficulty in this life. But you and I know it's worth it, right? That's why when Peter and the boys were beaten by the Sanhedrin, uh, they left that meeting rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Okay? But material blessing, if we can call it that, it will be enjoyed by us in the regeneration, just not in this current age. The promises of God to the church for faithfulness are suffering, persecution, tribulation, but through it all, we're promised peace and grace, endurance, perseverance. Paul says that we are joint heirs with Christ by way of suffering. Ugh. Romans 8:17. Paul says that it has been granted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. Paul went as far as to say, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. How many of you write that to your friends? Good job for your faithfulness. Duck. (laughs) God has appointed us to affliction. 1 Thessalonians 3.3. Peter says that we were called to suffering, 1 Peter 2.21. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, John 15.20. Did they persecute Jesus? So guess what? They'll persecute you. In this world, you will have tribulations, John 16.33. Why don't we record these in the promises of God? How many of you guys have a promises of God book? I have a couple of them, and these aren't common in those books because they're supposed to be inspirational. You will have tribulation. The the reality of suffering was so real that Paul went from church to church, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, that is, to be faithful, and saying, we must, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Do you realize this is the very opposite of God's promises to Israel for their faithfulness? This is a huge difference between us. Two different covenants. In fact, it was promised to Israel that they would only suffer those kinds of things if they were unfaithful. So what the church receives here on earth for her faithfulness, trials, tribulations, suffering, Israel received for their unfaithfulness. That could only possibly happen if we were under two different arrangements with God. It's different. So clearly the promises of God to Israel in the context of the old covenant, they're just very different Oftentimes, they're completely opposite of what he promised to the church in the New Testament. So clearly, we should not apply the physical and material promises made to Israel to ourselves. Do you see the problem with that? Yeah. 
lest we suffer great disappointment, a loss of trust in the Lord, because suffering will come. There are a number of believers among us in our church who have suffered miscarriage, stillborn, cancer, disease. Nearly everyone in the church got COVID-19, which is, by biblical definition, a plague. And it's not because we're walking in sin, but because no promise of God protects us from such things. Only Israel could have escaped those things through obedience to the covenant, okay? But God has no such covenant promises to us. So if you claim the promises of God made to Israel, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. And I think it creates a weird witness to other people, yeah. I had some friends tell me once that they had claimed the promise of God that no plague or sickness or disease should come near them from Deuteronomy 7.15 and Psalm 91.10. And then her husband, my friend, died of cancer. Yeah. The only conclusions to draw from this are these. Either God lied, those people were wicked and rebellious, which nullifies the promise, or that promise just did not apply to them. Do you guys understand? Okay. Yeah. When Timothy, uh, Epaphroditus, and Trophimus, in the New Testament, all three of these men got sick, and Paul wrote about it, and Paul didn't tell any one of them to repent and get right with God so they could be healed. He prayed for them. And when Epaphroditus got well, Paul didn't say that it was because he repented. He said, God had mercy on him. And he said, on me as well. Because he says, if Epaphroditus had died, it would have just overwhelmed me with sorrow. Yeah. So Christians have a bad habit of poorly interpreting the scriptures, which leads to an improper application of the text. That's not good for your faith. It's not good for communicating to other people what's going on. Um, I've heard Christians go around telling non-believers that, well, I don't get sick because I claim the, uh, the, the promise from Deuteronomy. And then you don't see them in church for a couple weeks. It's just, it's a bad look, okay? So let me, what I'd like to do real quick is look at some common promises of the Old Testament that don't really apply to us. Uh, there are some things in them that can apply to us, but don't, weren't made to us. And then we'll look at what does apply to us from the New Testament. And I got about no time to do that. So we probably shouldn't. <laughs> Let's not do it. Because I got, I got 20 minutes here and uh, my children's church people will uh, throw the tea in the harbor and it will be bad. So, um, so let's stand up and pray. I'm only eight minutes shy, but I did go long last week. So it all balances out in the end. So for fun this week, why don't you uh, look at some promises from the Old Testament that you know maybe you have applied to yourself or known somebody that has. Uh, a favorite one of mine shows up on bumper stickers a lot, uh, and it's, it's a pipe dream because uh, it doesn't apply. Um, so do your homework, and then look through your New Testament where you can be more assured that they do apply to you. Not everyone in the New Covenant applies to you individually, though. So you have, to, you have to pay attention to context. Amen? Okay, let's pray. And uh, if you guys have questions about what I've said, or um, I know people are just about to lose their mind with stuff going on with Israel. And um, yeah, let's pray. Well, Father, I'm so grateful for your word. But like anything else, um, it needs to be held within its context. Otherwise, we could make you say anything we want. And that's, that's not just inappropriate, it's immoral. And Lord, we want to be careful interpreters of your word. And we do, Lord. We want to know what actually 
applies to us. What you've given to us individually, collectively as the church, we want to be, we want to be good practitioners of the word. Lord, I thank you for my church family. It is a pleasure to serve them, um, to watch them grow in your image, mature, and it's a privilege that they put up with me and are gracious to me, love my family. Lord, we're, it's just sweet, and I'm grateful for it. Be with us today, we pray, and bless the rest of our time in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.